Trinity, Part 2, by B. B. Warfield. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 11. Father and Son in Johannine Discourses it is in the discourses recorded in john however that jesus most copiously refers to the unity of himself as the son with the father and to the mission of the spirit from himself as the dispenser of the divine activities here he not only with great directness declares that he and the father are one ten thirty compare seventeen eleven twenty one twenty two and twenty five with a unity of interpenetration the father is in me and i in the father 1038 compare 16 10 and 11 so that to have seen him was to have seen the father 149 compare 1521 but he removes all doubt as to the essential nature of his oneness with the father by explicitly asserting his eternity before abraham was born i am john 858 his co-eternity with god and with thee before the world was 175 compare 1718 662 his eternal participation in the divine glory itself the glory which i had with thee in fellowship community with thee before the world was seventeen five so clear is it that in speaking currently of himself as god's son five twenty five nine thirty five eleven four compare ten thirty six he meant in accordance with the underlying significance of the idea of sonship in semitic speech founded on the natural implication that whatever the father is that the son is also compare sixteen fifteen seventeen ten to make himself as the jews with equal appreciation of his meaning perceived equal with god five eighteen or to put it brusquely just god ten thirty three how he being thus equal or rather identical with god was in the world he explains as involving a coming forth exelthon on his part not merely from the presence of god apo sixteen thirty compare thirteen three or from fellowship with god para sixteen twenty seven seventeen eight but from out of god himself ek eight forty two sixteen twenty eight and in the very act of thus asserting that his eternal home is in the depths of the divine being he throws up into as strong an emphasis as stressed pronouns can convey his personal distinctness from the father if god were your father says he eight forty two ye would love me for i came forth and am come out of god for neither have i come of myself but it was he that sent me again he says sixteen twenty six and twenty seven in that day ye shall ask in my name and i say not unto you that i will make request of the father for you for the father himself loveth you because ye have loved me and have believed that it was from fellowship with the father that i came forth i came from out of the father and have come into the world less pointedly but still distinctly he says again seventeen eighteen they know of a truth that it was from fellowship with thee that i came forth and they believed that it was thou that didst send me it is not necessary to illustrate more at large a form of expression so characteristic of the discourses of our lord recorded by john that it meets us on every page a form of expression which combines a clear implication of a unity of father and son which is identity of being and an equally clear implication of a distinction of person between them such as allows not merely for the play of emotions between them as for instance of love seventeen twenty four compare fifteen nine three thirty five fourteen thirty one 
but also of an action and reaction upon one another which argues a high measure if not of exteriority yet certainly of exteriorization thus to instance only one of the most outstanding facts of our lord's discourses not indeed confined to those in john's gospel but found also in his sayings recorded in the synoptists as for example luke four forty three compare mark one thirty eight nine forty eight ten sixteen four thirty four five thirty two seven nineteen nineteen ten he continually represents himself as on the one hand sent by god and as on the other having come forth from the father for example john eight forty two ten thirty six seventeen three five twenty three etc twelve spirit in johannine discourses it is more important to point out that these phenomena of interrelationship are not confined to the father and son but are extended also to the spirit thus for example in a context in which our lord had emphasized in the strongest manner his own essential unity and continued interpenetration with the father if ye had known me ye would have known my father also he that hath seen me hath seen the father i am in the father and the father in me the father abiding in me doeth his works john fourteen seven nine and ten we read as follows john fourteen sixteen to twenty six and i will make request of the father and he shall give you another thus sharply distinguished from our lord as a distinct person advocate that he may be with you for ever the spirit of truth he abideth with you and shall be in you i will not leave you orphans i come unto you in that day ye shall know that i am in the father if a man love me he will keep my word and my father will love him and we that is both father and son will come unto him and make our abode with him these things have i spoken unto you while abiding with you but the advocate the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name he shall teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that i say unto you it would be impossible to speak more distinctly of three who were yet one the father son and spirit are constantly distinguished from one another the son makes requests of the father and the father in response to this request gives an advocate another than the son who is sent in the son's name and yet the oneness of these three is so kept in sight that the coming of this another advocate is spoken of without embarrassment as the coming of the son himself verses eighteen nineteen twenty and twenty one and indeed as the coming of the father and the son verse twenty three there is a sense then in which when christ goes away the spirit comes in his stead there is also a sense in which when the spirit comes christ comes in him and with christ's coming the father comes too there is a distinction between the persons brought into view and with it an identity among them for both of which allowance must be made the same phenomena meet us in other passages thus we read again fifteen twenty six but when there is come the advocate whom i will send unto you from fellowship with the father the spirit of truth which goeth forth from fellowship with the father he shall bear witness of me in the compass of this single verse it is intimated that the spirit is personally distinct from the son and yet like him has his eternal home in fellowship with the father from whom he like the son comes forth for his saving work being sent thereunto however not in this instance by the father but by the son this last feature is even more strongly emphasized in yet another passage in which the work of the spirit in relation to the son is presented as closely parallel with the work of the son in relation to the father sixteen five and following but now i go unto him that sent me nevertheless i tell you the truth it is expedient for you that i go away for if i go not away the advocate will not come unto you 
but if I go, I will send him unto you, and he, after he has come, will convict the world of righteousness, because I go to the Father, and ye behold me no more. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he shall guide you into all the truth, for he shall not speak from himself, but what things soever he shall hear, he shall speak, and he shall declare unto you the things that are to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things whatsoever the Father hath are mine, therefore I said that he taketh of mine, and shall declare it unto you. Here the Spirit is sent by the Son, and comes in order to complete and apply the Son's work, receiving his whole commission from the Son, not, however, in derogation of the Father, because when we speak of the things of the Son, that is to speak of the things of the Father. It is not to be said, of course, that the doctrine of the Trinity is formulated in passages like these, with which the whole mass of our Lord's discourses in John are strewn, but it certainly is presupposed in them, and that is considered from the point of view of their probative force even better. As we read, we are kept in continual contact with three persons who act, each as a distinct person, and yet who are in a deep underlying sense one. There is but one God, there is never any question of that, and yet this Son, who has been sent into the world by God, not only represents God, but is God, and this Spirit, whom the Son has in turn sent into the world, is also himself God. Nothing could be clearer than that the Son and Spirit are distinct persons, unless, indeed, it be that the Son of God is just God the Son, and the Spirit of God just God the Spirit. 13. The Baptismal Formula Meanwhile, the nearest approach to a formal announcement of the doctrine of the Trinity, which is recorded from our Lord's lips, or, perhaps we may say, which is to be found in the whole compass of the New Testament, has been preserved for us not by John, but by one of the synoptists. It, too, however, is only incidentally introduced, and has for its main object something very different from formulating the doctrine of the Trinity. It is embodied in the great commission which the resurrected Lord gave his disciples to be their marching orders, even unto the end of the world. Go ye therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28.19 In seeking to estimate the significance of this great declaration, we must bear in mind the high solemnity of the utterance, by which we are required to give its full value to every word of it. Its phrasing is in any event, however, remarkable. It does not say in the names, plural, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, nor yet what might be taken to be equivalent to that in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Ghost, as if we had to deal with three separate beings. Nor, on the other hand, does it say in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Ghost, as if the Father, Son and Holy Ghost might be taken as merely three designations of a single person. With stately impressiveness, it asserts the unity of the three by combining them all within the bounds of the single name, and then throws up into emphasis the distinctness of each by introducing them in turn with the repeated article in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, authorized version. These three, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, each stand in some clear sense over against the others in distinct personality. These three, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, all unite in some profound sense in the common participation of the one name. Fully to comprehend the implication of this mode of statement, we must bear in mind further the significance of the term the name and the associations laden with which it came to the recipients of this commission. 
for the hebrew did not think of the name as we are accustomed to do as a mere external symbol but rather as the adequate expression of the innermost being of its bearer in his name the being of god finds expression and the name of god this glorious and fearful name jehovah thy god deuteronomy twenty eight fifty eight was accordingly a most sacred thing being indeed virtually equivalent to god himself it is no solecism therefore when we read isaiah thirty twenty seven behold the name of jehovah cometh and the parallelisms are most instructive when we read isaiah fifty nine nineteen so shall they fear the name of jehovah from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun for he shall come as a stream pent in which the spirit of jehovah driveth so pregnant was the implication of the name that it was possible for the term to stand absolutely without a junction of the name itself as the sufficient representative of the majesty of jehovah it was a terrible thing to blaspheme the name leviticus twenty four eleven all those over whom jehovah's name was called were his his possession to whom he owed protection it is for his name's sake therefore that afflicted judah cries to the hope of israel the saviour thereof in time of trouble o jehovah thou art in the midst of us and thy name is called upon us leave us not jeremiah fourteen nine and his people find the appropriate expression of their deepest shame in the lament we have become as they over whom thou never bearest rule as they upon whom thy name was not called isaiah sixty three nineteen while the height of joy is attained in the cry thy name jehovah god of hosts is called upon me jeremiah fifteen sixteen compare two chronicles seven fourteen daniel nine eighteen and nineteen when therefore our lord commanded his disciples to baptize those whom they brought to his obedience into the name of he was using language charged to them with high meaning he could not have been understood otherwise than as substituting for the name of jehovah this other name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost and this could not possibly have meant to his disciples anything else than that jehovah was now to be known to them by the new name of the father and the son and the holy ghost the only alternative would have been that for the community which he was founding jesus was supplanting jehovah by a new god and this alternative is no less than monstrous there is no alternative therefore to understanding jesus here to be giving for his community a new name to jehovah and that new name to be the threefold name of the father and the son and the holy ghost nor is there room for doubt that by the son in this threefold name he meant just himself with all the implications of distinct personality which this carries with it and of course that further carries with it the equally distinct personality of the father and the holy ghost with whom the son is here associated and from whom alike the son is here distinguished this is a direct ascription to jehovah the god of israel of a threefold personality and is therewith the direct enunciation of the doctrine of the trinity we are not witnessing here the birth of the doctrine of the trinity that is presupposed what we are witnessing is the authoritative announcement of the trinity as the god of christianity by its founder in one of the most solemn of his recorded declarations israel had worshipped the one only true god under the name of jehovah christians are to worship the same one only and true god under the name of the father and the son and the holy ghost this is the distinguishing characteristic of christians and that is as much as to say that the doctrine of the trinity is according to our lord's own apprehension of it the distinctive mark of the religion which he founded fourteen genuineness of baptismal formula a passage of such range of implication has of course not escaped criticism and challenge 
an attempt which cannot be characterized as other than frivolous has even been made to dismiss it from the text of matthew's gospel against this the whole body of external evidence cries out and the internal evidence is of itself not less decisive to the same effect when the universalism ecclesiasticism and high theology of the passage are pleaded against its genuineness it is forgotten that to the jesus of matthew there are attributed not only such parables as those of the leaven and the mustard seed but such declarations as those contained in eight eleven and twelve twenty one forty three twenty four fourteen that in this gospel alone is jesus recorded as speaking familiarly about his church sixteen eighteen eighteen seventeen and that after the great declaration of eleven twenty seven and following nothing remained in lofty attribution to be assigned to him when these same objections are urged against recognizing the passage as an authentic saying of jesus own it is quite obvious that the jesus of the evangelists cannot be in mind the declaration here recorded is quite in character with the jesus of matthew's gospel as has just been intimated and no less with the jesus of the whole new testament transmission it will scarcely do first to construct a priori a jesus to our own liking and then to discard as unhistorical all in the new testament transmission which would be unnatural to such a jesus it is not these discarded passages but our a priori jesus which is unhistorical in the present instance moreover the historicity of the assailed saying is protected by an important historical relation in which it stands it is not merely jesus who speaks out of a trinitarian consciousness but all the new testament writers as well the universal possession by his followers of so firm a hold on such a doctrine requires the assumption that some such teaching as is here attributed to him was actually contained in jesus's instructions to his followers even had it not been attributed to him in so many words by the record we should have had to assume that some such declaration had been made by him in these circumstances there can be no good reason to doubt that it was made by him when it is expressly attributed to him by the record fifteen paul's trinitarianism when we turn from the discourses of jesus to the writings of his followers with a view to observing how the assumption of the doctrine of the trinity underlies their whole fabric also we naturally go first of all to the letters of paul their very mass is impressive and the definiteness with which their composition within a generation of the death of jesus may be fixed adds importance to them as historical witnesses certainly they leave nothing to be desired in the richness of their testimony to the trinitarian conception of god which underlies them throughout the whole series from one thessalonians which comes from about fifty two a d to two timothy which was written about sixty eight a d the redemption which it is their one business to proclaim and commend and all the blessings which enter into it or accompany it are referred consistently to a threefold divine causation everywhere throughout their pages god the father the lord jesus christ and the holy spirit appear as the joint objects of all religious adoration and the conjunct source of all divine operations in the freedom of the allusions which are made to them now and again one alone of the three is thrown up into prominent view but more often two of them are conjoined in thanksgiving or prayer and not infrequently all three are brought together as the apostle strives to give some adequate expression to his sense of indebtedness to the divine source of all good for blessings received or to his longing on behalf of himself or of his readers for further communion with the god of grace it is regular for him to begin his epistles with a prayer for grace and peace for his readers 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, as the joint source of these divine blessings by way of eminence. Romans 1 7, 1 Corinthians 1 3, 2 Corinthians 1 2, Galatians 1 3, Ephesians 1 2, Philippians 1 2, 2 Thessalonians 1 2, 1 Timothy 1 2, 2 Timothy 1 2, Philemon verse 3, compare 1 Thessalonians 1 1. It is obviously no departure from this habit in the essence of the matter, but only in relative fullness of expression, when in the opening words of the epistle to the Colossians the clause, and the Lord Jesus Christ, is omitted, and we read merely, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. So also it would have been no departure from it in the essence of the matter, but only in relative fullness of expression, if in any instance the name of the Holy Spirit had chanced to be adjoined to the other two, as in the single instance of 2 Corinthians 13.14, it is adjoined to them in the closing prayer for grace, with which Paul ends his letters, and which ordinarily takes the simple form of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Romans 16.20, 1 Corinthians 16.23, Galatians 6.18, Philippians 4.23, 1 Thessalonians 5.28, 2 Thessalonians 3.18, Philemon verse 25, more expanded form, Ephesians 6.23 and 24, more compressed, Colossians 4.18, 1 Timothy 6.21, 2 Timothy 4.22, Titus 3.15. Between these opening and closing passages, the allusions to God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are constant and most intricately interlaced. Paul's monotheism is intense. The first premise of all his thought on divine things is the unity of God. Romans 3.30, 1 Corinthians 8.4, Galatians 3.20, Ephesians 4.6, 1 Timothy 2.5, compare Romans 16.22, 1 Timothy 1.17. Yet to him God the Father is no more God than the Lord Jesus Christ is God, or the Holy Spirit is God. The Spirit of God is to him related to God as the Spirit of man is to man, 1 Corinthians 2.11, and therefore if the Spirit of God dwells in us, that is God dwelling in us, Romans 8.10 and following. And we are by that fact constituted temples of God, 1 Corinthians 3.16. And no expression is too strong for him to use in order to assert the Godhead of Christ. He is our great God, Titus 2.13. He is God over all, Romans 9.5. And indeed, it is expressly declared of him that the fullness of the Godhead, that is, everything that enters into Godhead and constitutes it Godhead, dwells in him. In the very act of asserting his monotheism, Paul takes our Lord up into this unique Godhead. There is no God but one, he roundly asserts, and then illustrates and proves this assertion by remarking that the heathen may have God's many and Lord's many, but to us there is one God the Father, of whom are all things, and we unto him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we through him, 1 Corinthians 8.6. Obviously this one God the Father and one Lord Jesus Christ are embraced together in the one God who alone is. Paul's conception of the one God, whom alone he worships, includes, in other words, a recognition that within the unity of his being there exists such a distinction of persons as is given us in the one God the Father and the one Lord Jesus Christ. 16. Conjunction of the Three in Paul In numerous passages scattered through Paul's epistles, from the earliest of them, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2-5, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, to the latest, Titus 3, 4-6, 2 Timothy 1, 3, 13, 14, 
All three persons, God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, are brought together in the most incidental manner, as co-sources of all the saving blessings which come to believers in Christ. A typical series of such passages may be found in Ephesians 2.18, 3, 2 to 5, 14 and 17, 4, 4 to 6, 5, 18 to 20. But the most interesting instances are offered to us perhaps by the epistles to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6, Paul presents the abounding spiritual gifts with which the church was blessed in a threefold aspect and connects these aspects with the three divine persons. Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit and there are diversities of ministrations, and the same Lord, and there are diversities of workings, but the same God who worketh all things in all. It may be thought that there is a measure of what might almost be called artificiality in assigning the endowments of the church, as they are graces to the Spirit, as they are services to Christ, and as they are energizings to God, but thus there is only the more strikingly revealed the underlying Trinitarian conception as dominating the structure of the clause. Paul clearly so writes not because gifts, workings, operations stand out in his thought as greatly diverse things, but because God, the Lord, and the Spirit lie in the back of his mind constantly, suggesting a threefold causality behind every manifestation of grace. The Trinity is alluded to rather than asserted, but it is so alluded to as to show that it constitutes the determining basis of all Paul's thought of the God of redemption. Even more instructive is 2 Corinthians 13.14, which has passed into general liturgical use in the churches as a benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Here the three highest redemptive blessings are brought together and attached distributively to the three persons of the triune God. There is again no formal teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity. There is only another instance of natural speaking out of a Trinitarian consciousness, Paul is simply thinking of the divine source of these great blessings, but he habitually thinks of this divine source of redemptive blessings after a trinal fashion. He therefore does not say, as he might just as well have said, the grace and love and communion of God be with you all, but the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Thus he bears almost unconsciously, but most richly, witness to the trinal composition of the Godhead as conceived by him. 17. Trinitarianism of Other New Testament Writers The phenomena of Paul's epistles are repeated in the other writings of the New Testament. In these other writings also it is everywhere assumed that the redemptive activities of God rest on a threefold source in God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, and these three persons repeatedly come forward together in the expressions of Christian hope or the aspirations of Christian devotion, for example, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4, 6, 4 to 6, 10, 29 to 31, 1 Peter 1, 2, 2, 3 to 12, 4, 13 to 19, 1 John 5, 4 to 8, Jude verses 20 and 21, Revelation 1, 4 to 6. Perhaps as typical instances as any are supplied by the two following, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 2 Praying in the Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Jude, verses 20 and 21 To these may be added the highly symbolical instance from the Apocalypse, Grace to you and peace from him which is 
and was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from jesus christ who is the faithful witness and firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth revelation one four and five clearly these writers too write out of a fixed trinitarian consciousness and bear their testimony to the universal understanding current in apostolical circles everywhere and by all it was fully understood that the one god whom christians worshipped and from whom alone they expected redemption and all that redemption brought with it included within his undiminished unity the three god the father the lord jesus christ and the holy spirit whose activities relatively to one another are conceived as distinctly personal this is the uniform and persuasive testimony of the new testament and it is the more impressive that it is given with such an unstudied naturalness and simplicity with no effort to distinguish between what have come to be called the ontological and the economical aspects of the trinitarian distinctions and indeed without apparent consciousness of the existence of such a distinction of aspects whether god is thought of in himself or in his operations the underlying conception runs unaffectedly into trinal forms eighteen variations in nomenclature it will not have escaped observation that the trinitarian terminology of paul and the other writers of the new testament is not precisely identical with that of our lord as recorded for us in his discourses paul for example and the same is true of the other new testament writers except john does not speak as our lord is recorded as speaking of the father the son and the holy spirit so much as of god the lord jesus christ and the holy spirit this difference of terminology finds its account in large measure in the different relations in which the speakers stand to the trinity our lord could not naturally speak of himself as one of the trinitarian persons by the designation of the lord while the designation of the son expressing as it does his consciousness of close relation and indeed of exact similarity to god came naturally to his lips but he was paul's lord and paul naturally thought and spoke of him as such in point of fact lord is one of paul's favourite designations of christ and indeed has become with him practically a proper name for christ and in point of fact his divine name for christ it is naturally therefore his trinitarian name for christ because when he thinks of christ as divine he calls him lord he naturally when he thinks of the three persons together as the triune god sets him as lord by the side of god paul's constant name for the father and the holy spirit question may no doubt be raised whether it would have been possible for paul to have done this especially with the constancy with which he has done it if in his conception of it the very essence of the trinity were enshrined in the terms father and son paul is thinking of the trinity to be sure from the point of view of a worshipper rather than that of a systematizer he designates the persons of the trinity therefore rather from his relations to them than from their relations to one another he sees in the trinity his god his lord and the holy spirit who dwells in him and naturally he so speaks currently of the three persons it remains remarkable nevertheless if the very essence of the trinity were thought of by him as resident in the terms father son that in his numerous allusions to the trinity in the godhead he never betrays any sense of this it is noticeable also that in their allusions to the trinity there is preserved neither in paul nor in other writers of the new testament the order of the names as they stand in our lord's great declaration matthew twenty eight nineteen the reverse order occurs indeed occasionally as for example in one corinthians twelve four to six compare ephesians four four to six and this may be understood as a climactic arrangement 
and so far a testimony to the order of matthew twenty eight nineteen but the order is very variable and in the most formal enumeration of the three persons that of two corinthians thirteen fourteen it stands thus lord god spirit the question naturally suggests itself whether the order father son spirit was especially significant to paul and his fellow writers of the new testament if in their conviction the very essence of the doctrine of the trinity was embodied in this order should we not anticipate that there should appear in their numerous allusions to the trinity some suggestion of this conviction nineteen implications of son and spirit such facts as these have a bearing upon the testimony of the new testament to the interrelations of the persons of the trinity to the fact of the trinity to the fact that is that in the unity of the godhead there subsist three persons each of whom has his particular part in the working out of salvation the new testament testimony is clear consistent pervasive and conclusive there is included in this testimony constant and decisive witness to the complete and undiminished deity of each of these persons no language is too exalted to apply to each of them in turn in the effort to give expression to the writer's sense of his deity the name that is given to each is fully understood to be the name that is above every name when we attempt to press the inquiry behind the broad fact however with a view to ascertaining exactly how the new testament writers conceive the three persons to be related the one to the other we meet with great difficulties nothing could seem more natural for example than to assume that the mutual relations of the persons of the trinity are revealed in the designations the father the son and the holy spirit which are given them by our lord in the solemn formula of matthew twenty eight nineteen our confidence in this assumption is somewhat shaken however when we observe as we have just observed that these designations are not carefully preserved in their allusions to the trinity by the writers of the new testament at large but are characteristic only of our lord's allusions and those of john whose modes of speech in general very closely resemble those of our lord our confidence is still further shaken when we observe that the implications with respect to the mutual relations of the trinitarian persons which are ordinarily derived from these designations do not so certainly lie in them as is commonly supposed it may be very natural to see in the designation son an intimation of subordination and derivation of being and it may not be difficult to ascribe a similar connotation of the term spirit but it is quite certain that this was not the denotation of either term in the semitic consciousness which underlies the phraseology of scripture and it may even be thought doubtful whether it was included even in their remoter suggestions what underlies the conception of sonship in scriptural speech is just likeness whatever the father is that the son is also the emphatic application of the term son to one of the trinitarian persons accordingly asserts rather his equality with the father than his subordination to the father and if there is any implication of derivation in it it would appear to be very distant the adjunction of the adjective only begotten john one fourteen three sixteen to eighteen one john four nine need add only the idea of uniqueness not of derivation psalm twenty two twenty one twenty five sixteen thirty five seventeen wisdom seven twenty two margin and even such a phrase as god only begotten john one eighteen margin may contain no implication of derivation but only of absolutely unique consubstantiality as also such a phrase as the first begotten of all creation colossians one fifteen may convey no intimation of coming into being but merely assert priority of existence 
in like manner the designation spirit of god or spirit of jehovah which meets us frequently in the old testament certainly does not convey the idea there either of derivation or of subordination but is just the executive name of god the designation of god from the point of view of his activity and imports accordingly identity with god and there is no reason to suppose that in passing from the old testament to the new testament the term has taken on an essentially different meaning it happens oddly enough moreover that we have in the new testament itself what amounts almost to formal definitions of the two terms son and spirit and in both cases the stress is laid on the notion of equality or sameness in john five eighteen we read on this account therefore the jews sought the more to kill him because not only did he break the sabbath but also called god his own father making himself equal to god the point lies of course in the adjective own jesus was rightly understood to call god his own father that is to use the terms father and son not in a merely figurative sense as when israel was called god's son but in the real sense and this was understood to be claiming to be all that god is to be the son of god in any sense was to be like god in that sense to be god's own son was to be exactly like god to be equal with god similarly we read in one corinthians two ten and eleven for the spirit searcheth all things yea the deep things of god for who of men knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him even so the things of god none knoweth save the spirit of god here the spirit appears as the substrate of the divine self-consciousness the principle of god's knowledge of himself he is in a word just god himself in the innermost essence of his being as the spirit of man is the seat of human life the very life of man itself so the spirit of god is his very life element how can he be supposed then to be subordinate to god or to derive his being from god if however the subordination of the son and spirit to the father in modes of subsistence and their derivation from the father are not implicates of their designation as son and spirit it will be hard to find in the new testament compelling evidence of their subordination and derivation twenty the question of subordination there is of course no question that in modes of operation as it is technically called that is to say in the functions ascribed to the several persons of the trinity in the redemptive process and more broadly in the entire dealing of god with the world the principle of subordination is clearly expressed the father is first the son is second and the spirit is third in the operations of god as revealed to us in general and very especially in those operations by which redemption is accomplished whatever the father does he does through the son romans two sixteen three twenty two five one eleven seventeen and twenty one ephesians one five one thessalonians five nine titus three five by the spirit the son is sent by the father and does his father's will john six thirty eight the spirit is sent by the son and does not speak from himself but only takes of christ's and shows it unto his people john seventeen seven and following and we have our lord's own word for it that one that is sent is not greater than he that sent him john thirteen sixteen in crisp decisiveness our lord even declares indeed my father is greater than i john fourteen twenty eight and paul tells us that christ is god's even as we are christ's one corinthians three twenty three and that as christ is the head of every man so god is the head of christ one corinthians eleven three but it is not so clear that the principle of subordination rules also in the modes of subsistence 
as it is technically phrased that is to say in the necessary relation of the persons of the trinity to one another the very richness and variety of the expression of their subordination the one to the other in modes of operation create a difficulty in attaining certainty whether they are represented as also subordinate the one to the other in modes of subsistence question is raised in each case of apparent intimation of subordination in modes of subsistence whether it may not after all be explicable as only another expression of subordination in modes of operation it may be natural to assume that a subordination in modes of operation rests on a subordination in modes of subsistence that the reason why it is the father that sends the son and the son that sends the spirit is that the son is subordinate to the father and the spirit to the son but we are bound to bear in mind that these relations of subordination in modes of operation may just as well be due to a convention an agreement between the persons of the trinity a covenant as it is technically called by virtue of which a distinct function in the work of redemption is voluntarily assumed by each it is eminently desirable therefore at the least that some definite evidence of subordination in modes of subsistence should be discoverable before it is assumed in the case of the relation of the son to the father there is the added difficulty of the incarnation in which the son by the assumption of a creaturely nature into union with himself enters into new relations with the father of a definitely subordinate character question has even been raised whether the very designations of father and son may not be expressive of these new relations and therefore without significance with respect to the eternal relations of the persons so designated this question must certainly be answered in the negative although no doubt in many of the instances in which the terms father and son occur it would be possible to take them of merely economical relations there ever remain some which are intractable to this treatment and we may be sure that father and son are applied to their eternal and necessary relations but these terms as we have seen do not appear to imply relations of first and second superiority and subordination in modes of subsistence and the fact of the humiliation of the son of god for his earthly work does introduce a factor into the interpretation of the passages which import his subordination to the father which throws doubt upon the inference from them of an eternal relation of subordination in the trinity itself it must at least be said that in the presence of the great new testament doctrines of the covenant of redemption on the one hand and of the humiliation of the son of god for his work's sake and of the two natures in the constitution of his person as incarnated on the other the difficulty of interpreting subordinationist passages of eternal relations between the father and son becomes extreme the question continually obtrudes itself whether they do not rather find their full explanation in the facts embodied in the doctrines of the covenant the humiliation of christ and the two natures of his incarnated person certainly in such circumstances it were thoroughly illegitimate to press such passages to suggest any subordination for the son or the spirit which would in any manner impair that complete identity with the father in being and that complete equality with the father in powers which are constantly presupposed and frequently emphatically though only incidentally asserted for them throughout the whole fabric of the new testament twenty one witness of the christian consciousness the trinity of the persons of the godhead shown in the incarnation and the redemptive work of god the son and the descent and saving work of god the spirit is thus everywhere assumed in the new testament and comes to repeated fragmentary but none the less emphatic and illuminating expression in its pages as the roots of its revelation are set in the threefold divine causality of the saving process 
it naturally finds an echo also in the consciousness of everyone who has experienced this salvation every redeemed soul knowing himself reconciled with god through his son and quickened into newness of life by his spirit turns alike to father son and spirit with the exclamation of reverent gratitude upon his lips my lord and my god if he could not construct the doctrine of the trinity out of his consciousness of salvation yet the elements of his consciousness of salvation are interpreted to him and reduced to order only by the doctrine of the trinity which he finds underlying and giving their significance and consistency to the teaching of the scriptures as to the processes of salvation by means of this doctrine he is able to think clearly and consequently of his threefold relation to the saving god experienced by him as fatherly love sending a redeemer as redeeming love executing redemption as saving love applying redemption all manifestations in distinct methods and by distinct agencies of the one seeking and saving love of god without the doctrine of the trinity his conscious christian life would be thrown into confusion and left in disorganization if not indeed given an air of unreality with the doctrine of the trinity order significance and reality are given an air of unreality with the doctrine of the trinity order significance and reality are brought to every element of it accordingly the doctrine of the trinity and the doctrine of redemption historically stand or fall together a unitarian theology is commonly associated with a pelagian anthropology and a sicinian soteriology it is a striking testimony which is borne by e könig offenbarungsbegriff des alten testaments eighteen eighty two one one two five i have learnt that many cast off the whole history of redemption for no other reason than because they have not attained to a conception of the triune god it is in this intimacy of relation between the doctrines of the trinity and redemption that the ultimate reason lies why the christian church could not rest until it had attained a definite and well-compacted doctrine of the trinity nothing else could be accepted as an adequate foundation for the experience of the christian salvation neither the sabellian nor the arian construction could meet and satisfy the data of the consciousness of salvation any more than either could meet and satisfy the data of the scriptural revelation the data of the scriptural revelation might to be sure have been left unsatisfied men might have found a modus vivendi with neglected or even with perverted scriptural teaching but perverted or neglected elements of christian experience are more claimant in the demands for attention and correction the dissatisfied christian consciousness necessarily searched the scriptures on the emergence of every new attempt to state the doctrine of the nature and relations of god to see whether these things were true and never reached contentment until the scriptural data were given their consistent formulation in a valid doctrine of the trinity here too the heart of man was restless until it found its rest in the triune god the author procurer and applier of salvation twenty two formulation of the doctrine the determining impulse to the formulation of the doctrine of the trinity in the church was the church's profound conviction of the absolute deity of christ on which as on a pivot the whole christian conception of god from the first origins of christianity turned the guiding principle in the formulation of the doctrine was supplied by the baptismal formula announced by jesus matthew twenty eight nineteen from which was derived the ground plan of the baptismal confessions and rules of faith which very soon began to be framed all over the church 
it was by these two fundamental principia the true deity of christ and the baptismal formula that all attempts to formulate the christian doctrine of god were tested and by their moulding power that the church at length found itself in possession of a form of statement which did full justice to the data of the redemptive revelation as reflected in the new testament and the demands of the christian heart under the experience of salvation in the nature of the case the formulated doctrine was of slow attainment the influence of inherited conceptions and of current philosophies inevitably showed itself in the efforts to construe to the intellect the imminent faith of christians in the second century the dominant neo-stoic and neo-platonic ideas deflected christian thought into subordinationist channels and produced what is known as the logos christology which looks upon the sun as a prolation of deity reduced to such dimensions as comported with relations with a world of time and space meanwhile to a great extent the spirit was neglected altogether a reaction which under the name of monarchianism identified the father son and spirit so completely that they were thought of only as different aspects or different moments in the life of the one divine person called now the father now son now spirit as his several activities came successively into view almost succeeded in establishing itself in the third century as the doctrine of the church at large in the conflict between these two opposite tendencies the church gradually found its way under the guidance of the baptismal formula elaborated into a rule of faith to a better and more well-balanced conception until a real doctrine of the trinity at length came to expression particularly in the west through the brilliant dialectic of tertullian it was thus ready at hand when in the early years of the fourth century the logos christology in opposition to the dominant sabellian tendencies ran to seed in what is known as arianism to which the sun was a creature though exalted above all other creatures as their creator and lord and the church was thus prepared to assert its settled faith in a triune god one in being but in whose unity there subsisted three consubstantial persons under the leadership of athanasius this doctrine was proclaimed as the faith of the church at the council of nicaea in three twenty five a d and by his strenuous labours and those of the three great cappadocians the two gregories and basil it gradually won its way to the actual acceptance of the entire church it was at the hands of augustine however a century later that the doctrine thus become the church doctrine in fact as well as in theory received its most complete elaboration and most carefully grounded statement in the form which he gave it and which is embodied in that battle hymn of the early church the so-called athanasian creed it has retained its place as the fit expression of the faith of the church as to the nature of its god until to-day the language in which it is couched even in this final declaration still retains elements of speech which owe their origin to the modes of thought characteristic of the logos christology of the second century fixed in the nomenclature of the church by the nicene creed of three twenty five a d though carefully guarded there against the subordinationism inherent in the logos christology and made the vehicle rather of the nicene doctrines of the eternal generation of the son and procession of the spirit with the consequent subordination of the son and spirit to the father in modes of subsistence as well as of operation in the athanasian creed however the principle of the equalization of the three persons which was already the dominant motive of the nicene creed the homoousia is so strongly emphasized as practically to push out of sight if not quite out of existence these remnant suggestions of derivation and subordination 
it has been found necessary nevertheless from time to time vigorously to reassert the principle of equalization over against a tendency unduly to emphasize the elements of subordinationism which still hold a place thus in the traditional language in which the church states its doctrine of the trinity in particular it fell to calvin in the interests of the true deity of christ the constant motive of the whole body of trinitarian thought to reassert and make good the attribute of self-existence autotheotos for the son thus calvin takes his place alongside of tertullian athanasius and augustine as one of the chief contributors to the exact and vital statement of the christian doctrine of the triune god end of trinity part two by b b warfield